Some of you may already know Nancy because she's talked to our group twice before on Thai and Asian food. And uh, so what's a nice girl from North Carolina with a name like McDermott doing teaching Thai cooking, writing Thai cookbooks, and earning a reputation as one of our nation's authorities on Thai cuisine? That's because Nancy trained as a teacher, taught English to kids in rural Thailand as a volunteer in the Peace Corps, and learned tons about Thai food. And she likes to cook, too. When she came back to the US, Nancy studied cooking and fell in love with food writing and launched a career as a cooking teacher and esteemed cookbook author. After writing a number of best-selling books on Thai and Asian cuisine, Nancy got back to her roots and wrote more best-selling books on southern cakes, southern pies, and now southern fruits. This is Nancy's 14th book, and each one has been written with passion. I've never seen her food passion over the I've never seen, no, I've seen her food passion <laughs> over the years at <laughs> numerous conferences we've attended together and when she's presented to us in the past. So Nancy, we're ready for you to come down and embrace us with your passion about the South's fruity history. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. Um, Y'all really are the troopers. It's, it, it, even if you came by elevator and didn't have to worry about a parking space, and I know some people drove uh, pretty far to get here, but even if you just came downstairs, this is a day to stay in bed and binge watch that thing that you've been saving or you know, have a, have a long breakfast in your jammies. And uh, y'all are here, and that just really means the world to me. To, to, to fill up a room, it's like, you are my people if you're here this morning. So thank you so much for the honor of coming here. And uh, um, third time's the charm, but the first and second times were the charm also. I came here to speak about um, my Thai cookbooks for the first time, and then when Southern Cakes came out. Um, and Catherine, I think you wrangled cake production. I think there were 10 or 12 cakes from the book where different people said, I'll make this, I'll make that. So I hadn't seen all of those cakes in the room since, <laughs> well, ever, because when I was testing for the book, I did them one by one. So I love this group, and uh, you're the reason that I write cookbooks and teach cooking classes and uh, do the work that I do is because I love food and I love the stories that come with food. And when I go to a restaurant and a chef makes a fabulous dish that's really, really delicious, I usually don't want the recipe because I know they probably walked into a kitchen where the garlic was chopped and the oven was already on and they've got you know, um, sauces and broths and things ready to go. It's a different kind of cooking. Um, but I'm always intrigued when I'm walking through the farmer's market and there's somebody selling Apple Jacks at, at the North Carolina State Farmer's Market a few weeks ago. And Apple Jack is a very regional North Carolina name. Does anybody know? Yes, but this isn't what I saw there. It's an, it, this is a particular name for fried pies which I, when I did my Southern Soups and Stews, uh, my Southern Pies book, uh, I came across that. I had a recipe for fried pies, and it's like, okay, well, Applejack is a name for fried pie, and it's like, there I am, 2017, at the farmer's market, and there's one in a little baggie with a little, you know, cut up at Kinko's and pulled out little label of what's in it. So I love that people are still doing old things. I love the new things. It's, to me, just the best time to be cooking and eating, and I'm grateful to be here with all my foodie people. Um, I wanted to begin by thanking, again, Scott, thank you so much for 
opening the door and letting me come so many times, and I, I just really love being here. Catherine wrangling and doing, and Catherine was the person who said, you want to go, when I was in town for a conference, there's this new Thai place that I've heard about. It's really great, and it was, and getting groups together, and Judith Dunbar-Hines is my dear, dear friend from way, way back, and she can pull meals, and she lives hospitality and genius generosity and uh, event management and so many, and loves the stories, loves the people, and loves to make it work for everybody. So I thank you so much for making me look good up here. Very little of what you'll eat today that is wonderful is from me, it's from her. So thank you so much, Judith. And um, my friend who is, is it Kathy? Beth, I'm so sorry. And Beth, thank you for getting all the bits and pieces together for this. Oh, excellent. So, so fruit needs, it's good, you eat it fresh, but once you're going to cook it, you need spices. And this is the time of year. I tell people just take all the spices in your cabinet, put them in a bowl, and go out and give them to the universe and buy new spices because they do so much. They have great stories. So um, it's really an honor to have you here. Um, and I, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to, uh, for people who love uh, Asian food as much as I do. Last night, Judith um, and some friends and I went to Saigon Sisters. Um, which is a wonderful restaurant, and um, you, I've got the and there's a Thai place, Bang Chop, which is nearby. That was a that was a boy. I wish I lived here moment, and I know there's so much of that wonderfulness in Chicago food. I also want to thank my friend Susan Miura, who is here, and she writes young adult fiction novels and children's books. And this is uh, one of her latest uh, children's books about animals. And uh, she drove. They got in the car and drove. Um, through the rain, so uh, it, it's just really such a treat to be in the room. Thank, thank everybody for the journey you made to get here. Okay, I wanted to, you have the handout, and um, let me just tell you quickly. So I'm born and raised in North Carolina. Um, I uh, went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My, I grew up in Burlington and High Point, just, you know, suburban, regular southern little cities. Uh, my grandparents on my mother's side had a, still had a dairy farm. And so my mother grew up one of four girls on a dairy farm. And my grandmother, Nancy McCauley Lloyd Suit, for whom I'm named, I'm the middle of three girls, um, loved to cook. And she was, you know, she was up at four feeding 12 people that I didn't even know about when I toddled in in my footy pajamas. Um, you know, at nine o'clock on the morning when I was staying there, I didn't realize the oven had been hot for hours and that she had made sausage and eggs and biscuits and, you know, was just going to cook an egg for me. And I, I just, I remember the impression of uh, being presented with egg and sausage and biscuits and grits and everything. And the eggs were always fascinating because they were sort of lumpy but shiny and moist, perfect eggs, but they had little white dots because she would have taken the eggs from the hen house, broken them in the pan in the sausage grease, and stirred them up. So they weren't all, you know, they weren't fried. They weren't mixed together with an egg beater like my mother would have done scrambled eggs. And I just thought, wow, that's strange, yum ate them right away. Um, she was a great baker. Uh, I think that was a time when all women had to cook. That was part of the job description. I think we're in a great time now where men can cook. Women don't have to. They're, this is just the best time to be cooking. But she did enjoy that. And I did not learn to cook from her, but I remember hanging out in the kitchen, standing on a chair while she's slinging flour and making biscuits and making her famous coconut cake. And I got the impression that the kitchen is a good place. Cooking is fun. This is a way to be happy doing it. And sitting at the table, people were happy eating it. And that, 
you know, I don't know if I came in like that or if I picked that up when I was five, but um, that's, that's kind of always been my connection. And I'm never really too tired to cook. I'm too tired to transcribe those notes. I'm too tired to edit the manuscript, but I can always go in the kitchen and open the fridge and start pulling things together. I know some of you are like that and some of you are not, and that's okay because cooks need eaters. Everybody doesn't need to cook. And you can buy a cookbook and read it and never cook a thing. No rules. Um, I went in the Peace Corps. I was always interested in the world and traveling. I wanted to see Asia. Um, and I did get sent to Thailand in 1975, a long time ago. And nobody said, wow, you're going to get all that Thai food. It was a very, it was a different time. And I went there to teach English as a second language in a um, junior high school. And while I had not wanted to be a teacher going through college, that just seemed so go back home and, you know, be bored and not have a real life. I actually loved junior high kids. I loved teaching. I loved the community of schools. And I did come back from two years in Surin province and one in Bangkok and uh, get my teaching certificate. And I taught school in, uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina for five years. Then I moved to New York City, partly because I wasn't um, meeting any um, interesting young men. And I didn't want my life to be <laughs> still there teaching, which I loved. I moved in with friends in New York City. and. It's real easy to meet people in New York City uh, because, you know, you're not all in your cars. You're not all, you know, it's not a sort of suburban world. It's a, it's a go to the museum world and, you know, walk in the park world and somebody's leaving for uh, Ethiopia for, a, you know, archaeological tour kind of world. I met my husband standing in line at the movies at the Lincoln Plaza Cinema. Um, at a from Mao to Mozart, Isaac Stern's tour of China. When you when there could be a movie made about you because you were famous and you went to China, <laughs> that was a big. It was a long time ago, and we got married in 19. I moved up there. We got married in 1985 when he finished graduate school. We went to Southern California for um, his postdoc at UC Irvine, and then ended up he took a job in, at a biotech company in San Diego. So 15 years after New York, I was in Thailand, New York. 15 years in, in uh, basically in Southern California, San Diego. We had two children there, two daughters, and we moved back to North Carolina. Yay, I, was, I love Southern California, but I really wanted to get what still feels like home um, while my parents were still there, were still here. They both passed away in 2009. But we took our four-year-old and our eight-year-old back to North Carolina, and there were the fall leaves and the, the wild persimmons and the coconut cakes and people really cooking a lot. And um, that kind of got me thinking, I'd been writing for some time, but that got me thinking about all the home baking that my grandmother had done. And I started writing Southern books. I've got Southern pie, southern cakes, Southern pies, and Southern soups and stews. And um, this book is part of a series. It's called the Savor the South series. It's from University of North Carolina Press, which has a wonderful catalog. If you love food and cooking and home cooking and food with stories, check out the UNC Press catalog because they've kind of been on this trail for a long time. Uh, the editor, Elaine Maisner, thought it would be great to have a series of, of mostly single subject cookbooks about southern food, mostly ingredient driven. So there's, there's peaches, there's pecans, there's bourbon, there's okra, there's sweet potatoes. Um, there's also there's Southern Holidays, there's um, Sunday Suppers, there's a book on chicken. Um, uh, so I, we were kind of looking for something for me to do, and I kept saying, how about coconut? You know, how about rice? And she said, eh. And then she said, you know, we want one on figs, scuppernong muscadine grapes, and... Um, and wild persimmons. And I said, oh, that's great, I, yeah, that, that's my book. This is the one, I'm gonna do this one. And then I said, but can we do blackberries? And she said, okay, 
figs. And you see the problem with the title already. And then I said, and you know, we, we really should do like cantaloupes and watermelon. And she said, okay, it's going to be fruit. And we, we went from three to seven to nine. They thought they were going to cut me off at 10. They cut me off at 12, which was kind of perfect. And there, I could have done 10 more. Um, I had to narrow it down and make decisions. And I, I decided to leave out apples and pears, which are intrinsically, wonderfully, deeply Southern, and I get sort of challenged on that a little bit, and mulberries are more obscure. Uh, but apples and pears are beloved and well-known everywhere. And not everybody know, has the scuppernong thing, and not everybody, you know, there, there's a version of blackberries, but actual blackberries are pretty Southern. So I focused on ones that were deeply Southern, that really sort of had a Southern story. And without meaning to, I have six that are wild indigenous native fruits, and six that are immigrants that are adopted, that were brought in one way or the other from elsewhere. And I just kind of love how that came out. I decided to arrange the book by alphabetically because I decided it's a handbook. And so somebody's gonna say, well, what the heck are pawpaws? Or I'm, I love strawberries, wonder if she's got such and such in there. So you look in, it's alphabetical. Um, I, I wanted to talk today mostly about the, um, the ones that are lesser known. So I'm gonna talk about damson plums, mayhaws, muscadine scuppernongs, pawpaws, persimmons, and quince. This is on your, uh, on your handout list. And I said those are the particular and peculiar. And, by, and I think peculiar is a very positive word. I hope that doesn't seem uh, mean. Uh, but unusual, maybe not as well known, and, uh, and, and maybe a little bit odd. And, and you know, in the South, I think we sometimes like odd. It's kind of, it can be a plus, not a negative. Uh, and the familiar and southern, one, southern ones, I do not mean to disrespect. They are fantastic and always have more of a story than you might have thought. Um, peaches are in here. At first they said, don't do peach. We're not going to do peaches because we have a whole book on peaches. And then once we got up into the, into the higher numbers, they said, you know what? You better put peaches in there because people are going to think we forgot. They're going to not see the list. And as I said, yay, every time they let me have another one, I did. And actually, actually I had watermelon and cantaloupe as a joint because they're both melons, but they're not. Cantaloupe is actually a melon. Watermelon is not a melon. Watermelon is a member of the cucumber family, which I should have known because in Thailand it's called thangmo, and, in, and the Thai word for cucumber is thangkwa. If you know Thai, it's a very multisyllabic Indian-influenced uh, language, but words like that are very much from Thailand's Chinese influence. So in that, they're in the Thang family, which you would see, you know, you see the root of that, kind of like knowing a Latin root for something. Um, so each one got their own chapter. Um, and just by the way, before I, I jump in, uh, Judith was so kind um, to give me a listing. If anyone is looking for ingredients, you can get wild persimmon puree uh, by mail order from Dimples Delight, D-Y-M-P-L. Les, um, and it comes frozen, and uh, there are, and there are, you can also get fresh pawpaws and uh, lots of other fruit, Asian pears, and so forth from Oriana. Anybody familiar with Oriana from farmers markets? Judith said they know Oriana. She's around at the farmers markets, but there's some connection, and she has a great idea about pawpaws that I want to come back to in a minute. And the damsons were from Lions Lion Farms, which is at many of the farmers markets. Um, so let's start with. Now I'm going to go in the order of the pictures, just so that we. Um, stay there. The first one is, uh, the first set of uh, photographs is three pictures of a pie in process. And it is a um, scuppernong muscadine pie. And I do have a, a tray up here of 
uh, scuppernongs, and muscadines. So there's a muscadine grape family. You see that they're, they're quite round. They're round, they have a very thick skin, and they have big seeds inside. So there's this big round globe of delicious fruit pulp and this yummy, very super thick peel that has a lot of juice in it and great big seeds inside. I mean big seeds. So the, this is one like watermelon that we used to eat outside and you would, um, people do what they do. Uh, my people put it in, bite it so that the pulp comes out, chew around, take the skin back out, take the seeds out, throw them in the woods and keep going. Um, people, a lot of people from Georgia eat the whole thing. Why would you not, why would you throw away, you know, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of what you do. But when I put them out at a party, I always have a little, you know, I have a little receptacle like for the pits, if you have olives with pits or dates with pits or something. And uh, what I love about um, these is that they are North Carolina native. There is a Scuppernong River in Tarboro, North Carolina, toward the east. And uh, there are muscadines growing wild. I was at a, a Brunswick stew making uh, celebration at some, uh, some friend's house um, maybe about three years ago. And their family still does what their parents started doing you know, with the previous generation, getting all the kids together to do Brunswick stew in the fall, cooking it outdoors on various, you know, over a fire, on various contraptions that people have set up for church events. Um, and we were just talking about wild foods, and they said, well, we've got there's muscadines in the backyard. And we walked to the backyard of this little ranch house in Mebbin, North Carolina, and there were vines with muscadines hanging. It, it was just such a joy. So muscadine is the dark purple one, and I have seen them growing in the wild. I see scuppernongs in North Carolina. If I drive, say, out of the town of Durham, a few miles where you're not, you're not really in the country, it's not really farms, but it's older, small homes on a lawn. And you look in the backyard and there will be a, um, what looks like a sort of slumping, not quite high enough laundry um, uh, wash lines. And it's a Scuppernong grape arbor. And those were very common. I remember when I was growing up, it was sort of my mother's generation, but I remember seeing them. And you'd have one Scuppernong plant that could grow, the vine would be, you know, get really big and grow up and cover it. And that would be one family's supply of Scuppernongs for, um, for making jelly, for making jam, for making wine. Um, people are, are kind of partial to the Scuppernong. There's a million ways to pronounce it, which are kind of hilarious and regional. And um, you can make a pie with a combination. If you use the purple ones or half purple ones, it will be purple like you'd expect a grape pie. If not, um, it will be you know, sort of gold and it'll sort of look like apple. Well, what I love about this, uh, the grape hull pie, um, and actually Judith told me they do that, they do grape hull pie with Concord grapes, with any grape that has a really thick, flavorful skin that's, by the way, full of, I think, nutritional things that we really need um, and adds color. <clears throat> the traditional way to do this is to have two big bowls. You squeeze out the pulp, and I like to make a little, just, you know, have a paring knife and make a little cut at the stem end and squeeze, and you separate the hulls and cook the pulps just enough to soften them up, and then Instructions say to put them through a sieve, but the pulp is really thick. So if you loosen them up a little bit, I just pick up the pick up each one and get rid of the seeds and put all the juices and pulp back in. It's a fussy thing, you know. It's kind of like, oh, this is so much trouble, but you know, it's one season a year, and people used to not have all the things that we have to do. So it's this, and I just love thinking of, you know, who were the first women who said, seems like a shame to throw all that away. And so you separate it out, you get rid of the seeds, you put the hulls and the pulp and all the juice that came out 
together into a, uh, an uncooked pie crust with a little bit of flour, sugar, flour, maybe a little cinnamon, dot with butter, cover it, and you make a pie. And it is so delicious. It really captures the spirit of this fruit. Um, I did one. I, that's what I've written in my books. That recipe is, is in uh, this book. Um, and the last time I did it, I thought, you know, I'm just going to cut them in half. So I got a serrated knife, and I just cut them open, trying to go, you know, long ways. And I just you know, took, got the seeds out with my thumb, with a fork, and that seemed to me to go a little bit faster. And so when I did that, I didn't even cook it. It doesn't need to be cooked. The cooking phase was, is just to loosen up those seeds. So that is a wonderful pie. Um, people make wine, which of course is very sweet, just naturally, plus they tend to do it in a sweet way. And uh, jams, jellies, um, I have a wonderful recipe in the book from my friend Sandra Gutierrez, which is uh, muscadine grapes cooked with chicken in a coca van kind of way. So really delicious. And these are now available in uh, supermarkets in North Carolina. They're being grown um, commercially, so there are probably four or five orchards that have them, you know, just, just like strawberries, uh, both the, the scuppernong and the muscadine, you know, for from late August through September. I got these at the farmer's market probably about two weeks ago. These are a little bit tired. They're a little bit going toward, you know, going toward, I'm going to be wine one of these days. But I kept them in the fridge, and I, I just brought them to show you. You're welcome to come get some and eat them. They're wonderful. Uh, but that's one of my favorite things. Okay, muscadine and scuppernongs. Let's turn the corner, and I think this is the most mysterious. This is, this is the one, looks like, excuse me, it looks like it might be cranberries. They look like cranberries. This is Mayhaw's. And Mayhaws were the one that I had never seen and really never heard of. Only when I started researching uh, southern fruits, I came across these. And because they're so, you know, not, not well known, they're in a very specific region, uh, re you know, across several states. Um, I thought, well, I don't know, should I put that in? And I'll tell you, the first picture is the reason that I put them in. So Mayhaws grow along waterways. They grow along, thank you so much, um, Streams, creeks, slow rivers. They're in Louisiana, so think bayous. So obviously the tree likes to be near the water. It is a member of the hawthorn family. And if you've ever gone to China and seen people selling as street food, actually I've seen this in Taiwan as well, um, looks like cherry tomatoes on a stick, and there are hawthorn fruits. They're, they're bigger than this, but the hawthorn family has these fruits that are very tangy. They're kind of like little crab apples. They're kind of like apples. Uh, these are not, you see how small they are. So see the person's hand. So they're about the size of cherries, bigger than cranberries, about the size of cherries. Um, they're a little bit, they're sort of hard like apples. If you cut them in half, it kind of looks like the letter H. So it's like an apple if you ate everything except the core and then cut it in half. Uh, and they are not delicious until they're cooked. So why did people, why is it such a big deal? Well, in the early spring in East Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, parts of Georgia, Arkansas, I think I'm missing one, but this little section down sort of Mississippi and uh, Arkansas area, People look for the trees, and they bloom with a beautiful white flower in the uh, late winter, very early spring, and you watch for that. And then in the olden times, people would get the canoe or the little rowboat or whatever kind of pontoon that you've got, and grandma and the cousins and everybody would get together and go out on an expedition and gather in the Mayhaws in what month? May. They're the Hawthorns of May. So late April, early May, the these... Um, 
kind of look like cherries, mayhaws come in, and people would go out and gather them. And it's not the problem that you have with the blackberries. I went to pick blackberries with my grandmother, and she lost a lot of blackberries because we ate them. You know, it was, it was probably one end to eaten, one end to eaten. You don't eat these. They're, they're not delicious until they're cooked. So you bring them back and just cook them down to make a syrup which is red and super tangy. And then that syrup becomes wine or another kind of spirit or jelly or, um, or just juice that's used as a sweetened beverage. And we've got mayhaw jelly for you to taste over there. It's just tangy and it's pretty and it's red. And what I love about it is that tradition. And, you know, if you start looking it up, people, you know, from all the different states say, I remember we used to always go. Now, the areas where mayhaws grow naturally are, of course, victims of development. So, um, and people aren't so much having a boat that they can just get in and go out, but the mayhaw is a beautiful tree. So luckily, the departments of agriculture at Louisiana State and Arkansas Tech and so forth got in the business of mayhaw domestication. So you'll find mayhaws all over those areas now, just growing. Obviously, it doesn't have to have the water, just like rice doesn't have to have the water. That's just one way to grow it. So mayhaw trees and mayhaws are available all through that area, but I bet the majority of people are growing them for their beauty. And you see the same thing. People put out big blue tarps and gather in the fruit, and it's a very short season. Um, so that you know, that's one uh, to make. I have a recipe for mayhaw jelly, and you can order the um, you can order the juice from uh, online sources. I mean, the Google is the friend of fruit fans because you it's just amazing what you can find just looking something up and here's somebody who's got a little business doing this or that so um but i just i love that story of the mayhaws and the uh the going out on an expedition and i think you know well it might not be mayhaws but just think about that going to pick apples or blueberries or you know is there something in your world that you can do and make it an annual thing i think that's really a blessing okay next page and you can kind of see how i feel about this particular fruit because who got two pages persimmons and who got the cover? Persimmons. Um, I ask UNC Pratt, I mean, you know, it's usually, at my level, it's not up to the author what's on the cover of the book. I'm glad I love all the covers of my books because it wasn't my call. Um, but I said, I really hope we can have either muscadines, cuppernong grapes, or wild persimmons on the cover because, you know, they've already got a book with peaches, strawberries, blackberries, even figs. They're beautiful, but this, I think, really tells the story. The only thing bad about this wonderful picture is you don't have scale. So if you don't know what it is, a gentleman this morning was saying, are those pomegranates? Because, you know, you need to know that this is about the size of one of these, you know, it's the, the wild persimmons in North Carolina and actually Indiana, and I mean, they're, they're all over. They're not only in the South. But wild persimmons are you know, say a ping pong ball would be a really huge one. So these are tiny. And I actually do have a couple of wild ones uh, for you to look at. Um, but uh, the first picture, and Judith was talking to me about this last night, if you cut open the seed for some of them, you will find fortune-telling magic inside. There are three different shapes, which and I, this Judith Dunbar-Hines, who knows everything. Who, I wrote this book with a persimmon on the cover, and last night she was telling me about the magic fortune-telling seeds. So... That's why I hang out with her. I'm, you know, I'm sooner or later I'm going to find out everything I need to know. Um, so there are one sort of a knife, fork, spoon kind of shapes, and there is a divining that can happen if you know. I, I figure, oh, they're all good luck. Whatever you see is, it's like, oh, that's good luck. I've got good luck. That's that's what I hold in my mind. There's also a predicting the winter in certain things that you, when you cut up the, open the persimmon seed. So I love all that old wisdom. Um, this is 
The second picture is a bunch of wild persimmons in a colander. That is my favorite way of uh, processing them. You can use a food mill if you have one and you're good with it, but some years, not this year, they're very seedy. And so when I was writing this book, the persimmons I was getting, they would, even being that size, they would have five seeds in there. And so I couldn't get around the food mill without having to stop and scrape the seeds out. So I became a fan of the colander. I've got a big colander. I put it into a great big stainless steel bowl, and just the kind that I pour pasta into in the sink. It's got feet. And I put in um, maybe a double, triple handful of persimmons, and I roll up my sleeves, and I don't wear this. I wear an old T-shirt, and I just get in there, and I mash, and I mush. And everything goes through except for um, the little, uh, the little uh, calyx, the little tops, and the seeds. The skin is fine, and of course twigs and so forth. So I like to do that, and then press it through a finer mesh, uh, a, like a you know a, a screen, what, what is it, a sieve. Um, and you know, rubbing it and make sure you get all the stuff off the back of it. But my friend Bill Smith, who has a Crook's Corner restaurant in Chapel Hill, uses a food mill for her and him, he does fine. Um, and you can order uh, persimmon puree. We've, we've got an address here. It's also something that you'll see in farmers markets um, sometimes you know, during this time of year. And people will process it, freeze it, and have it through the winter. So, so check on that if you want to work with the, the wild persimmons. The third one is a picture of persimmon bark. So if you're out in the woods and it's not persimmon season, and you're not sure, it has a very distinctive bark. And again, if you, you know, Google wild persimmons and, um, you know, put trees, it is, it's, it's quite, th this one is extremely dramatic. This is a huge tree. The one that's uh, nearest to me in Carborough, North Carolina, is maybe about that big around, and you wouldn't notice it so much uh, as this one, but the persimmon hardwood is very treasured, and so when a persimmon tree is old, people leave it up, they grow wild at the edge of fields. If for some reason one has to be cut down and people who know about music know about it, they're going to want to keep that tree because the wood of persimmon is very prized for making music musical instruments and other kinds of furniture. It's really hard and really beautiful. It is related to ebony in some distant ancient way. So all the stories. On the next page, we have this wonderful contraption. And of course, Judith has one. Has anybody ever seen these? Sure. And what was it used for in your family? Just pressing, pressing all the fruit. I mean, I thought of them as being invented for persimmons, but they're, uh, people use them for grapes and for, and for anything. And again, if you're, if you're in the professional restaurant industry, you say, well, that's a chinois. And I thought, yeah, does a, does a chinois ever have uh, one of these things to hold it up? They're always hanging. But this a beautiful pestle, and this is a treasure, and this is Judith. This is Judith Dunbar-Hines, which came from her mother, who probably got it from her, I believe, mother-in-law. So that is an absolutely wonderful way to go. And again, look online. You can probably order one. Look for it in hardware, especially if you're in hardware stores in the Midwest and in the South. At those old places that still have the speckleware, you might find one of those on the shelf. Somebody's still making them. Oh, church rummage, perfect. Yes, when somebody's cleaning out a house, not everybody's going to know that that is a treasure, and you might get it for $2. So, yeah, $2 or less. Okay, the, the next to the last picture is, is a picture of very large persimmons growing. Now, I haven't seen a tree that easy to pick and with that so much large fruit. All the ones that I go to, the tree grows way up and it's, you know, it's kind of the understory. So I've never seen one where I could pick them. And the thing with persimmons, the bottom picture is domesticated persimmons. So the, the ones that are on the front of the table here are Fuyu persimmons. And they are, um, they're uh, the uh, Japanese and Asian 
cultivated, domesticated uh, persimmon. There's two kinds. This is fuyu, which looks like a tomato and is hard. Is it's not hard. It's firm. Uh, not as firm as an apple, but you know you know it's ripe pretty much when they when they put them out there. You need to cut it. You probably want to peel it. It's got a few seeds in there, but not a lot. And there's another one called the hachia persimmon, which is shaped sort of like a lantern. So it's it's round at the top and it comes to a point. It has very thin skin, and you know it's ripe when it's mushy, almost like a mango. And you can use either one of those in the recipes that I have, or in any recipe for persimmon pulp. It won't be as orangey. Uh, deep colored and the flavor is milder, uh, but you can absolutely use it. And I um, cut those up. Um, if I'm going to strain it through something really fine like this, you might not even uh, have to peel it. But I, I, I cut off the peel and just process it in a, few, in a food processor. For the hachia, if it's ripe, I just get the seeds out and that top off. And again, I, I leave the peel on for the hachia ones because the peel is very soft. And you do leave the peel on for the wild ones. Um, I wanted to, sh let's see, I've got little wild. So on this tray, I went to my favorite tree in Carborough. And uh, there are, I got, I thought, oh gosh, I wish I could just get five. I got five. It's amazing. Um, they always look sort of a little bit sad. You know, they don't fall, you look up and I say, those are ripe. I have shaken the tree. They will not let go until they're ready. And there's a wonderful, I, I write about this in the book. Um, if you have a tree that you know about and you want to gather the most, you put out a sheet or a bedspread, one that you will never put on a bed again, but you know, an old sheet or bedspread, put it under the tree at night and rush out in the morning first light because you are going to be racing. So the, tr the fruit that is really ripe and ready to go, I mean, ready to eat right now, will plop during the night. I mean, I've, I've been at the tree and heard, thump. I mean, it really just lets go. It's kind of like a joke. It's kind of like it's watching you. And you'll get out there, but remember the possums, the squirrels, the um, many kinds of birds, deer, all the wild creatures know about that tree and they want them too. So if you want that, you need to get out there early and gather them up and you need to not be alarmed that they look sort of like something that you would weed out and, th and throw away. And they might even be, they might even split a little bit because they're so soft. Make sure that you come and look at these. Um, here's one on it, but these little hats, the little stems, um, I've got seeds also. There, I just think it's it's magic, and they are in North Carolina. Anywhere they like to grow on the edge of a field. So if there's an old tobacco field or corn field or something at a farm that was cleared a long time ago, that's going to probably have some persimmon trees along the edge. They grow at the edge. They must need a lot of sunlight. So you don't find them deep in the forest. You find them on the edge. Um, but they're really a treasure, and um, um, that. I think I have more persimmon recipes. Persimmon and figs, I think, got the most recipes. Um, okay, let's move on. The, um, the next page is quince. And you, you, so the first thing you see is prepared quince. So go to the second quince page, and you'll see a beautiful picture. Now, quince is the easiest one to find as in art. You'll see it in paintings, in, in pictures, you know, Audubon paintings with birds. There'll be a bird... Um, posed on a quince blossom, or uh, you'll see them um, in, you know, just used in food styling and artistic things. It has beautiful white flowers with a little bit of pink tinge. Um, they used to be planted ornamentally as well as for their fruit. And 
<clears throat> so you'll see, now these are very yellow. They're, I would say their shape is odd. It, you see it and you think, is that an apple? Is it a pear? Sometimes they're more greenish. Um, these are, the ones that I have here are, there's a green one and a couple of yellow ones. And there's just lots of bumps and they're hard. They don't get soft. And um, I find, I think one reason, so they are a British import. Um, or or they're, they came over in colonial times. They're beloved in Britain, um, both the, the beauty of the trees and for the use of the fruit. Um, and I think it's one which kind of went by the wayside because like the mayhaws, uh, you can't eat it until it's been processed in some way. So we bite into an apple, we bite into a pear, but you don't want to bite into a, print, a, a quince. It's, it's an odd mixture of dry and mealy. It's very hard. It's hard to cut through the, um, the seeds in the middle. It's just kind of a, um, a confounding fruit. Uh, but people do cut through it, and you'll see here, this top one is ratafia, and this is a recipe that's in the book. You take the whole quince and you grate it, like on, on a, a, a box grater. I would cut it into, say, four pieces and rub the, um, you know, rub an exposed part of it you know, get, get rid of the leaves, um, and just grate it up, seeds, everything, and put that into a big jar, and you need it about a third full of, um, third full of sugar, add the amount of quince that I tell you, and then add uh, vodka or brandy, and cover it for about three months. And that makes a, um, it makes a liqueur. So this is a Jane Grigson recipe that's in, uh, I think it's Jane Grigson's fruit uh, fruit book. Um, and it's it's a lovely, and then you strain it, you don't stir it up, you just sort of let it sit, let everything melt together, strain it, and you've got this lovely liqueur. So if you do that now, you don't quite have time for Christmas, but you've got time for Valentine's Day or Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate, do it now, and in the winter you'll have this lovely thing. Um, other things that are done are uh, poaching it. So the one back on this first page, uh, this is poached quince, and you see how it, it the color, when you look inside of it, it, do I have to cut one? I'll cut one open for you in just a minute. When you cut it open, it looks exactly like an apple. They're the little seeds, it's white. When you cook it, it releases a peachy, rosy color. So is anybody familiar with membrillo, which is the uh, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, Latinx, delicious quince paste? It's, so quince are cooked down with sugar in a sugar syrup water until you end up just with a wonderful goo. It's almost like a jam. And you can buy that in uh, Latin stores and tiendas. Um, you can buy it in um, fancy markets imported from Spain. And there's a, a yummy snack, which is membrillo quince paste and manchego cheese. It's a, this is a, a treat of La Mancha, and it is called Romeo and Juliet. I'm not sure which one is which, but Manchego cheese and quince paste, I will tell you, it's delicious. <laughs> Maybe it's because you, it's a love story and you love it so much. And I have a recipe for that. Again, very simple, just quince and sugar cook it down. Um, the uh, you know other things to do with it, this is a puff pastry. It's probably a sweet goat cheese or um, you know sweetened a little bit, just some kind of... Um, uh, uh, creme anglaise, and poached quince. But you want to cook it half an hour, an hour, till it's very soft and very sweet. And quince are aromatic. So if you have a, a big bowl of quince and leave them in a room that you pass through over time, they, as they ripen, they do ripen off the tree and they perfume the room. So people love quince for all these reasons and they're trouble, but I think they're, you know, sometimes, even if somebody's not the easiest person in the world, sometimes you still love them. So check out quince. 
All right. I am down to pawpaws. So pawpaws are on the back. I want to come, come back to the, uh, those intervening pages and talk about a couple of dishes. Okay, pawpaws on the back, and I've got uh, three pawpaws. I have a fig tree in the backyard, which has never, pro which has never produced a fig, and uh, somebody suggested to me that it might be a male tree, and I said, so I, you learn something every day. Some fig trees don't need any company, and some do. So I will be planting another fig tree in the backyard. It's also in a not sunny spot, so I just got one and thought it would be fun to have it. So, But boy, does it have beautiful leaves. And so I have uh, big fig leaves that are going to turn yellow in the next week, so I've got things sitting on them. So I've got three pawpaws. I ordered off after them from a place called Earthy Delights, which is, they specialize in wild foods. They're somewhere in, I didn't write that down, um, and they're Check with them today if you want some. They were at the end of the season, and they ship like three-pound boxes. It costs you more to ship it than it does for the fruit. But if you're looking for some, I got some um, about a week ago, and I kept them in the fridge, and they have not ripened. And I set them out a couple of days ago. One of them is ripe. So pop, when, once they come in season, once pawpaws are ripe, and I'll come back and talk about them in a minute, um, once they come in season, they are in season for about three weeks, and so you can, if you pick those, you know, at the, in the third week, you pick one that's green and hard, it still will be around for a week or 10 days before it ripens. So we're just at the end of the pawpaw season for most of the country. Pawpaws grow from the north Florida, from the panhandle, you know, once you're away from the beach and away from the super tropical, all the way up to Ohio and Michigan. So they're, not, they're certainly not only a southern fruit, but they are beloved in the south, and they're particularly beloved in the mountain south. And it, it's, it's kind of a love, it, it's, it's not a love-hate, it's a know about it and love or like it, or what the heck is that? I've heard of that. Anybody, any, we've got some baby boomers in here, picking up pawpaws, put them in your pocket, you know that song, and we sang it or hummed it or whatever. There may be other words, nobody remembers any. Um, I wrote a book including them, and I don't remember any other words. Um, but if you know what it is, it's like, well, how could you put that in your pocket? And I was looking that up, and pocket in olden times would, was a word for a little pouch, like a little drawstring bag, so you might have a little bag that you carried around for stuff that would be put on your apron, or maybe you had pockets in your apron. Maybe you were a girl with a skirt with pockets, although we kind of get cut out of the pocket sometimes. Um, but uh, but it's not, It's don't think of jeans with a front and a back pocket, because pawpaws would never ever, you know, even one that's even one that's small and underripe, it's like you'd only be able to get one. That doesn't make any sense. And they grow wild, they grow in the part of the far, in the deep in the far. So persimmons are on the edge. They need that sun. They're on the edge of a field. You can see them. Pawpaws, ask the hunters. Because hunters know where the possum and the squirrels and the deer and all the wild creatures hang out. And the wild creatures are smart, and they know they're going to go where this fruit is. And pawpaws were our beloved and known persimmons as well by uh, indigenous people. Native Americans were eating and uh, making, you know, making dried fruit out of and enjoying uh, pawpaws and persimmons and all the wild foods long before colonial presence began. Um, pawpaws were also 
something to look for on the Underground Railroad. When people were escaping to the north, they might get directions, you know, head for this area or that area because that's going to be a place that's going to have wild food if you're if it's the season of year for that. And we've got a picture here. This um, this pile of pawpaws is what Judith found at one of the farmer's markets that Oriana had. So she bought those and brought them. And there is a wonderful idea that uh, Judith got from uh, Oriana that I had never thought of. So when I have worked with them, I've cut them open, and I've got one that I'll cut open and have for you to look at. Um, cut them open and scoop out the, either peel it if it's real hard, scoop out all the pulp, get rid of the seeds, you know, separate it that way. But going from inside and scooping out around the skin. So Oriana, who is an expert at pawpaws, said peel the whole thing, a ripe one, and put it in the freezer in a bag like this. And then when you want to use it, take it out, snip, and squeeze out the pulp. And the, because the skin is gone, you should be left with just the seed. So a small enough hole for the goo to come out. At that point, you want it to just smush up and be gooey. I thought that was brilliant. I would never have thought to freeze it. So if you get some and they're ripe and you want to keep them, you can do what I did, which is struggle to get just the puree and mash it up and put it in or try this. I, so I, I love I love when a new idea comes up, you know, that's it's like the old wisdom is great, but it's like, and they didn't have Ziploc bags, did they? So this is a, that, that, that's a genius way to do things. Okay, let me talk about a couple more dishes. Now the top one is just... That's just pretty. That's just fig pie. And fig pie, fresh fig pie, is um, fig is not on my list of indigenous. Figs, of course, are not native to uh, the United States or North America or South America. Figs are native to uh, the Middle East, to Iran, to, Pers to Persia, Iran, the Silk Road, all those areas. And they were brought in by, but they've been beloved in Europe for many, many, many centuries. And so when Spanish colonists came to Florida, they planted fig trees and brought pigs. And um, when they left, the fig trees were very happy here, and so were a lot of the pigs. So figs have been part of American Southern food for many centuries. And one thing that I looked at in picking candidates, I looked at um, what uh, was planted at Monticello in the, in the gardens and uh, farmland of uh, Thomas Jefferson. And I also looked at Edna Lewis's book. And if, you're, if you come out on a day like this to talk about food, you should definitely be a, a, an owner of The Taste of Country Cooking by Edna Lewis. And it is her memoir, it's a recipe memoir of her life in Freetown, Virginia, which is actually very near Charlottesville, north of Charlottesville. It's near Orange, Virginia. And it's a community that was established after emancipation by people who had been enslaved and were free, and they made Freetown. And they lived um, a life of the seasons. You know, talk about farm to table. Judith says all food is farm to table. Uh, farm to table, seasonal cooking, local food. And the book is arranged by events going through the year. So there's a um, a New Year celebration, and there's race day when the horse races were happening, and there's dinner on the grounds at the church, and there's a, you know, all sorts of celebrations. So um, in, in her book, she talks about, um, so if a fruit were mentioned in her book, so she had blackberries, and she had figs, and she had damson plums. So that's a way that I uh, made some of my decisions on what should be in the book. Um, 
the figs that we get in North Carolina tend to be brown turkey, little, very sweet, and in, you know, they're not there, they're not there, they're there, they're everywhere, use them, eat them, do things, and then they're gone. And they're long gone now. By the time these uh, beautiful figs, often from California, come in, um, the, the local figs are gone. Bill Smith, my friend, the chef, cuts the local little local ones in half, sets them on a, a plate with um, a little bit of a goat cheese, sour cream, a few herbs, yummy little, just a little dressing, just a spot of it on top of this small fig. And then on top of that, he puts just a little pinch of shredded country ham. Oh my goodness, it's so good. You know, any kind of smoky meat would be delicious. So it's just a little bite to pop. And there is uh, one of the more popular southern cakes is fig cake. And I thought it would be made with fresh figs, but in fact, it's traditionally made with fig jam, fig jelly, fig preserves. And I thought, why wouldn't you use fresh? And then I thought, why would you make a big, wonderful, but heavy spice-oriented cake in July and August when the figs come in. You make the cake in October, November, December, January when you make a jam cake. So that all of a sudden that made sense. But one of the most popular recipes on my blog is my fig pie, which is just, it's just so easy that I think people don't really make a recipe for it, but it's just like apple pie. Ripe figs, chop them up, sugar, a little enough flour or cornstarch or tapioca powder to make it thick. Um, maybe a squeeze of lemon juice, some cinnamon, some nutmeg, whatever spices that you like, and you put that in and bake it. It, it couldn't be simpler. If you know how to make a fruit pie, you know how to make a fig pie. It just doesn't need to cook nearly as long as an apple. Um, but the, the three desserts that I wanted to talk to you about and then get you to your food are, the first one is uh, called a um, sonker, S-O-N-K-E-R, and I have a peach sonker in my book. And a sonker is just a deep dish cobbler now, in the South, I think most people th would consider a cobbler sweet fruit and biscuit dough, biscuit-like dough dropped on top, and then you scoop it all out and eat it with a spoon. It's wonderful. There's also the modern ones where it is a cake batter. Sometimes melt a stick of butter, put fruit on top of it, mix eggs and sugar, you know, pour a batter onto fruit, and it kind of change places, comes out sort of like a coffee cake, so there's gooey fruit and wonderful um, cake around it. That's another kind of cobbler. To me, because it's what my grandmother did, which is often the, you know, how you settle an argument about what's right and wrong, is it's like, well, my people did it this way, and that's why it's that. And it's like, that's not an argument. That's, that's your story. So, no, you know, if you say, no, a cobbler is this, I'm going to say, that's your cobbler. My cobbler is a deep, a, it's just a big old pie. So it's a great big 13 by 9 pan. They used to have a biscuit pan that's even bigger that was the size of, of a small oven that like you'd fill it, you know, so that you could do two dozen biscuits at a time. A pan, shallow, filled with pie dough, covered with whatever yummy fruit is in season and enough sugar. It might be sweet potatoes as well. There's a sweet potato sonker, which is wonderful. Then cover with uh, pastry on top to make a double crust pie or often, as in this case, lattice. This one is actually a, a strawberry and peach sonker. And the th one distinctive thing about sonker is it comes with dip. And dip is just a creamy milk sauce. It's milk and it's kind of milk. It's kind of sweet milk gravy. It's milk and enough uh, flour to thicken it and vanilla and sugar. And it's just a creamy sauce. And a lot of recipes have you pour dip over the pie, over the cobbler before it's ready, or you just serve it on the side. And this is a distinctive cobbler that is, it's in North Carolina, it's in Surrey County, 
It's in Mount Airy where Andy Griffith came from for the Andy Griffith Show, and nobody knows what that mean, that name means. Kim Severson of the New York Times went to, went to Surrey County, North Carolina, and she couldn't find it. They said, oh, it's whatever, you, you know, <laughs> it's anything you want it to be, basically. So um, I'm partial to the ones that are that old-time cobbler, but the main thing is it's delicious and it's really simple to make. Okay, two more desserts. Um, the one on the top is called a fool, and a fool, a fool is British. Um, there are two versions. The, old, the oldest one is sort of a cooked custard, and then whipped cream is mixed in, and then some kind of yummy fruit goo. So whatever gooseberry fool is probably the most popular. Either kind of fool, you take fruit, you cook it with sugar, you sweeten it just right so that it's a wonderful jammy jam, and then mix it, either layer it between or stir it into this custard cream mixture, which not that many people make anymore. The modern fool is nothing but perfect whipped cream. You make whipped cream with sugar, however sweet you like it. And then you put whipped cream, fruit goo, whipped cream, fruit goo, stir it together a little bit like we did here for this picture. Or my favorite way to eat it is to just mix it all together. So you have the whipped cream and you have the blackberries or whatever it is that you've cooked and you stir them together and it's just pudding. And I would call it instant pudding but in a good way, because you've made perfect, wonderful whipped cream, you've seasoned it with sweet fruit, and then there, there's your dessert ready, and in a beautiful uh, stemmed goblet is nice, but it, it's pretty good in a coffee mug, too. It's just wonderful. That's one of the easiest ways to, en to enjoy fruit. And the last one is shrub, and you're going to have this. Now, you're not going to have it over the crushed ice in the beautiful thing like my friend Kathy Hester did for this beautiful uh, photograph, but a shrub is actually from the strawberry chapter, and a shrub is one of the easiest desserts. You're just going to remember this. So a shrub is usually berries. So I'm going to say three cups of strawberries. If you've got great big ones, chop them into four. If you've got meaty ones, cut them in half. If you've got little ones, crush them a little bit. You want to expose strawberry surface. You want the hot vinegar that you're going to cover them with to have as much access to what's inside the berry. So I get a quart jar I get two quart jars, and I fill it with chopped strawberries. So about three cups of strawberries will fill a big glass quart jar. Then I heat apple cider vinegar on the stove until it is steaming hot. You, you can let it boil. It doesn't really need to boil. It just needs to be super hot. And pour that over the strawberries to cover them. You want to you see vinegar when you look down. You want the strawberries to be completely covered, so leave a little headroom. Let it cool to room temperature, cover it, and let it sit on the counter 24 to 48 hours. You have made strawberry vinegar. Now you strain it out and the strawberries have sort of puffed up but they look sort of sad and pastel they're compost goodbye um I, even I don't think of something to do with that. It's like they've done their job. You look at the vinegar and the strawberry essence is in the vinegar. Then you take this uh, vinegar and you want to measure it because a little bit may have cooked off. So I want to have three cups of strawberry vinegar. And if I have two and a half, I just add enough to fill it back up. I'm going to put that back on with three cups of sugar and just make it into a syrup. Again, just bring it to a boil. As soon as it's together, you're done. And that's what you're going to taste today. So that is a strawberry shrub. You could use blackberry. You could use blackberry and peach or strawberry and blackberry together. Um, you could use blueberry, although if I used blueberry, I think I would mash them because I would want, you know, vinegar on the outside of a blueberry is, blueberries, they're, they're pretty tough. You know, you can, you can throw them around in the sink and nothing happens to them. So if I use blueberries, I have not tried it, but I think I would mash them. And you could do it with any fruit that is juicy, and it's the kind of thing that people used to just have on hand. We're going to give you a little taste of it today. Now, my favorite way is to have it, um, it's, so, so think of it as like a, um, 
if you go to the coffee shop and you have the Italians, Italian soda, so they've got those syrups and soda water. So I like a little shot of strawberry shrub and seltzer water over ice. I like it with club soda. I like it with mineral water. I like it in lemonade. What else could I do with it? Oh, cocktails. It's perfect for, I mean, this is cocktail time. It doesn't get much easier than this. You have something that is tangy and red and sweet and sour and gorgeous. And what can't you do with it? I mean, put it in your gin and tonic, put it in, you know, I'm not good with cocktails. So I'm, you know, I sort of like it just for the strawberryness. The other thing I think that is wonderful is to have something that is special if you're having a party for people who do not drink alcohol for whatever reason. And how often have I sent, said, oh, and I've got some Diet Coke and some 7-Up. <laughs> you know, it's like, here is something that is absolutely special that doesn't need anything else. It's wonderful in, uh, it's wonderful with spirits and cocktails, but it's also just wonderful with that seltzer, or that mineral water. And when I serve it, I like to pour it in, it's, it's heavy, and then pour, the, have ice, pour the shrub in, and then fill it up with, say, mineral water. And then you've got this mysterious, red essence at the bottom and when you take your first sip you can't really tell so you could just sip it that way the whole way or you could stir it together it's just something fun and if you like to take a gift when you go to visit someone and you feel that you should make jam but you didn't or you made it but you don't want to can it this is something that you make get a little you know get a little eight ounce jar get a four ounce jar and take it to somebody here's a little treat that is incredibly easy to make it keeps for several months you can keep it in the fridge although you don't have to i mean it's sugar and vinegar pretty much so that is a sturdy wonderful simple old-time thing my favorite I haven't tested that in home. I'll have to ask some home economists. Yeah, that was, <laughs> I, for, I forgot. Yes, you've got a syrup. And with sweet and sour, you know, sort of not being it's, you know, with that. Yes, ice cream, pancakes. Remember, it's tangy. So you're going to taste it straight, and you may say, it's okay. I just want you to know what it's like and think about how easy it is to make it. Okay, a couple of things that you need to eat. This is a great book, Paw Paw. Ameri in Search of America's Forgotten Fruit by Andrew Moore. If, if anybody subscribes to The Art of Eating, Edward Bear's uh, long-running um, food newsletter, this is a wonderful book, and I did a review of it in their, uh, their fruit story earlier this summer. He's got wonderful pictures, and you might think there wasn't this much to say about it, but there is. It's a, it's a lovely nonfiction, um, not too academic, wonderful book that I, that I will put out here and highly recommend. And... Um, you got this, this is Southern Soups and Stews, and this, this recipe is not the one that's on the back. The one that's on the back is um, a simple burgoo recipe, which is one of the easiest stews, lots of meat, lots of vegetables, a great thing to put on the um, stove during, uh, you know, in, in this time of year. Um, and I have a recipe for turkey bone gumbo, so if anybody has that leftover turkey carcass and wants something feisty and delicious to do with it, that's, that's um, a good one that's also in that book. On the Savor the South cookbook, um, you should have gotten a card when you checked in. You're going to have peach chutney. Let me, I'll, I'll go over the menu in just a second and then let you have at it. But the peach chutney, which you're going to have on a slice of baguette with some yummy goat cheese, recipe is on the back of this card. So take that home. That's a, a simple one to make. And I will say, so many of these recipes are great with frozen fruit. So just 
Don't thaw it. So if I were making peach chutney with frozen peaches, I would take them out of the freezer, I would quickly chop them while they still hold their shape, and proceed. Because you're just going to cook them, you know, when you've cooked a fresh, fresh peach or a frozen peach for five minutes, it's going to be a little bit more soft, but if you cooked it ten minutes longer, it would be soft anyway. So I'm a big fan of frozen fruit. Okay, one more thing. Does anybody in Chicago get Southern Living Magazine? Heard of it? It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful magazine. Um, and I'm... I'm very proud that this is my pie. I, this, they called me because of the Southern Pies book and asked me to do a Thanksgiving pie story. So I've got 10 pies, um, and this just came on the newsstand. So uh, let me finish with, come back to Thanksgiving. What you're going to see on the food table are shrub. A little sip, remember, a little sip. Just pour yourself a little tiny bit and sip it. Uh, damson plum jam, yes. Yeah, yes. And and you know what? You don't want you don't want a shot of this. It's, you know, I I want you to taste it and know what it is. You know, in a perfect world, I would have, you know, three beverages and you can see which one you like. But ju just get a little sip of it. That that'll be fine. Um okay, damson plum jam on baguette. We made this yesterday with plum damson plums that Judith went to um the uh farmer's market to Lion Farm, Lion's Farm and got these when they were still in season and froze them so that we could make this jam. She put them in the freezer, you poke them, you leave the seeds in and cover them with sugar and leave them five hours or overnight and guess what happens? The juice just comes rolling out. It's like, I want to be jam. And then you take that yummy, gooey stuff, still with the seeds in it, and start cooking it. Cook it till it's soft. Put it through. We use this uh, food mill. You could do the, you could do the sort of the two-step, the colander, and then to a sieve to get the, um, uh, the, the peels out. Um, you could do a food mill, except there, there is a seed issue, So, um, but you will figure it out. It's wonderful. You just cook it. You keep cooking it. Add some lemon juice, and ta-da. It's a very loose, almost syrupy jam, but it's, it's wonderful, and it has that plum flavor. We've got wild persimmon pound cake, which is along the lines of a fig cake. It's got wonderful... Which of uh, Miss Patty's spices do we have in there? Cinnamon, oh, nutmeg, ginger... And keep going, mace, allspice would be good. It's like, what wouldn't be good? And remember, throw out the old ones and get new ones for the season. But a lovely persimmon pound cake, um, which has uh, cream cheese icing on it. We have pawpaw ice cream. And this is the best way to get the flavor of pawpaw, other than eating one outright, and of course I don't have any ripe ones for you to eat anyway, um, is to not cook it. So if you have pawpaw puree, put it in a milkshake. Put it in a very simple smoothie. Make ice cream. Make panna cotta. Panna cotta is basically milk pudding. Panna cotta is cream, sugar, and gelatin. So it doesn't have to be cooked. And once you get that panna cotta, you know, you've had it, the, the jiggly one. We went to Taiwan, we traveled to Taiwan quite a bit, and uh, there's milk pudding in dessert places. And, you know, I just, like five years, I go and say, milk pudding, I wonder how they make that. And then when I said, Oh, milk, it's, panna, it's basically panna cotta. It's milk with, you know, with a gelatin. So you have it all ready, and then you stir in pawpaw, which means the pawpaw never got heated, which is wonderful. So we've got pawpaw ice cream, so you can really taste that flavor. Um, interested to know what you think it tastes like. We've got mayhaw jelly. It's just, and just spoon some out, put it on your plate. I just want you to get that beautiful, tangy flavor. And come up and get some scuppernong grapes. I am so honored to be here with you, and I know you're hungry, and you've been very patient. Uh, yes? <laughs> a little bit. 
I went to a place where nobody spoke English, so that helped me get a good get a good start. But it's been a long time. But uh, and has anybody here traveled to Thailand? Mm, that, that's a good present to give yourself. It's a very wonderful, wonderful um, experience and place. So yes. Yes, I was asked if I speak Thai, and I do, and, but I said a little bit, and I'm pretty rusty. Um, but I, I can get by. But if someone, if someone Thai speaks English, we should go with English. I will just, <laughs> I, will say, I will absolutely say that. Yes. By Thai plateau, is Thai plateau food different from Hmong? Plateau, like, like not the mountains. Uh, Hmong food is very different. So, so is Thai plateau food different from Hmong food, like H-M-O-N-G? Uh, yes, I would say that Thai food and Lao food and the food of the countries where Hmong people lived is quite different because there are many similarities, but people are up in the mountains on you know areas where they don't have the herbs, the coconut trees, and so forth. So it, it is quite different. I would say Hmong food and the, the food of the mountain peoples is all similar to each other, more so than the, the lowland foods, just because of ingredients that people have and, and lifestyle. So it's, I would say it's much less spiced, much less, um, yeah. And so so it's, there's a sort of a simplicity to it. Y'all are hungry. Um, I want to wish you the happiest, yes. I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. It's my husband's favorite um, holiday. It's, it's one day. There's no presents. It's nobody's religion. It's just, it doesn't have to, you know, whatever happened in Plymouth, I don't know. But don't we need a day every year to look around and say, I'm so grateful. And to look around and say, you know, who can I gather with? And we can set another table. Um, I, I love the ritual. I'm, you know, I'm usually not looking for new recipes. <laughs> I'm like, and I started making green bean casserole a few years ago because my daughter loves it. I was a snob. I didn't make it. It's got canned soup. And I made it. And you know what? Everybody's happy. It's like, it, it is very sweet, and I thought, oh, well, I can make my own mushroom sauce, and then I thought, no, this is the food of my childhood. So I, want, I, I like to respect things, and people say, oh, I could never invite you over to eat. I'm sure this happens to Judith, too. And it's like, please invite me over to eat. I love, I, I raise children. I eat everything, and if you invite me to your table, and we have, if we have canned soup, I am so honored, because... I'm at your table, and that is a great gift. Thank you for having me here.